Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 25. Just a bit of recap here. Because we noted at the end of the book of Acts, there are several trials where Paul is taken into the courtroom. And so, two weeks ago, we looked at Paul's defense and his appeal before the governor Festus. And we see that Paul, every time he does two things, he defends himself and he gives a clear defense that he has not violated Jewish law and tradition and he has not violated Roman law and tradition. And so he makes a defense, but each time he preaches the gospel, doesn't he? As Sam said, we never graduate from the gospel and Paul seizes every opportunity that he's in front of people to proclaim the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the essence of the gospel. And we're going to see that again today in chapter 26. Now he's going to be on trial before another leader named King Agrippa, and we'll learn a little bit about him. He's going to preach the gospel from the scriptures, rooted in the Bible. And what we're going to see, we're going to pretty quickly move through this chapter. It's a longer one, but we're not going to cover every part of it, but we're going to see it in four parts. The first part, verses 1 through 11, Paul's going to defend himself again. The second part, he's going to recount his conversion story again for the third time. Verses 12 to 18. And then thirdly, he's going to proclaim Jesus, the Messiah, from the scriptures, from the Hebrew Bible, verses 19 to 23. And then lastly, catch this. He's going to try to convert the king, Agrippa. And Agrippa realizes this. He says, what are you trying to do, Paul? Convert me? And Paul says, you bet. I'm trying to convert you. So it is, it's powerful to watch. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 and then comment on it. But first, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every single word. We thank you for Holy Scripture. And we acknowledge, Jesus, that you are the word and that you open it to us through the Holy Spirit, and we ask for that. In your mighty name, Jesus, amen. So let's look at verses 1 to 11 and see Paul defend himself before this king, Agrippa. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So again, he's in Caesarea, he's in a courtroom, and he's granted permission, and then Paul stretches out his hand and begins to defend himself. You can picture he's chained, so at that point his chains are clinging as he stretches out his hand, and he says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, because you are especially familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg of you to listen to me patiently. Verse 4, all the Jews know my way of life from my youth, a life spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. 
They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I've belonged to the strictest sect of our religion and lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial on account of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors. A promise that our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. It is for this hope, your excellency, that I am accused by Jews. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem. With authority received from the chief priests, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. By punishing them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. So we get some biographical information here, don't we, that doesn't come through again. He's going to share his story three times and obviously it's important. It's like watching a film and we noted when you're watching a movie and a scene crops up two or three times, the director is trying to tell you this is really important. And so the same thing with Paul. Here he's giving a defense. He's explaining his background. And it's interesting, the contrast here. You've got King Agrippa. I have a slide if you don't mind putting that up, our media team. Can you see that or no? I don't know if it's pot. You can? Okay. Is there any way to dim it or no? Does that mess us up? I can hardly see it. Um, On the right is the Apostle Paul. Ah, there we go. Thank you so much. Beautiful. It's like putting on my new glasses from Tyler Glaze. (laughs) Thank you. You see Paul there. He's on the right. He's in worn out clothing. He's got chains. He's in shackles because that's what they did with a soldier as they, I mean, with a prisoner. And then you've got King Herod and Bernice and Festus there and Paul standing before him and they're in all their regalia and expensive clothing but we know who the real VIP in the room is and that's Paul. On this note, I just wanted to say something I intended to share a couple of weeks ago. Anybody wonder what Paul looked like? There is a document from the second century and whether we know it's you know, completely factual or not, we're not sure. But the document describes Paul as short and bearded and bald. And Amanda at this point said, it sounds like you, honey. (laughs) And I said, thank you. And he had a unibrow, the text says, and he was bow-legged. And so that is the description of Paul that ends up from the second century being adopted in a lot of the artwork. And you'll see that description, and I fit part of that, and some of you do as well. But Paul is standing before them, and he really is the one with the authority. He's really the one. Thank you for doing that. But he's describing here this humble, chained apostle standing before the corrupt King Agrippa. Can I tell you about King Agrippa for a minute? He comes from 
really gnarly family background, a corrupt line of Herods. He's Herod Agrippa II. His great-grandfather, listen to what he did. He was the one who tried to kill all the babies when Jesus was born. You remember that in the Gospels? That's his great-grandfather. And then his great-uncle, Herod Antipas, they're all called Herod with a different surname with that. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Remember that in the Gospels? And then his father is the one who killed James the Apostle and imprisoned Peter. So Agrippa comes from quite a family line. It's worse than the Soprano line, isn't it? If you watch the Sopranos, hopefully you didn't, but we know that Tony Soprano was a pretty bad dude. Well, this guy comes from a long line of bad dudes, killers. And so Paul's defending himself. He says, I was a strict Pharisee. I was a radical persecutor. And he lays out before him his resume. And he's setting up what's going to happen in the next section. He says, I was very Jewish. And I was very opposed to the person of Jesus. This is one thing that's tucked in here. I want us to look at this. Verse 11. Maybe it it stood out to you. It's the only place we have this recorded. Look at verse 11. He's again laying out his radicalized resume. How opposed he is to the person of Jesus. And he talks about punishing the Christians. Trying to force them to what? You see it there at verse 11? To blaspheme. So Paul would get into situations and try to force the followers of Jesus to curse Christ. And you read about that in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Some of you have read that before where it talks about no one says by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is accursed. And so Paul was trying to force people to renounce Christ. And this is probably, in my opinion, one of the heaviest things that was on his conscience his whole life. Even after he encountered the grace of Jesus, he was born again, he still called himself the chief of sinners. And it was text like this that led him to say that. Look at the second part. We'll read 12 to 18. And this is where he moves from being a radical persecutor of Jesus to a blazing, on-fire apostle for Christ. Let's read it. And again, this is the third time. We've seen it in chapter 9 and chapter 22, and here we are again hearing Paul's conversion. And there's going to be some new light shed on it at verse 12. With this in mind, his radical resume, opposing Christ and Christians, he says, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, When at midday along the road, your excellency, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and my companions. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is the new information here. It hurts you to kick against the goads. What in the world does that mean? We'll look at that in a moment. Paul asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and testify 
to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So again, Paul is recounting his conversion the moment he met Jesus and he's explaining again what happened. And so you see a light, a voice from heaven. And again, we looked at this some time ago, a few months back. He's in the desert, blazing sun at noon and a glory that eclipsed the sun in the desert, reflecting off the sand, hit him. And it was the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He heard the voice. And again, we revisit this because it's the greatest conversion story in early church history. And it builds our faith that the Lord can save anyone at any time. He calls him Saul. Saul is Hebrew name. Later on, he'll be called Paul, his Greek name. It's beautiful. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because to persecute Christ's followers is to persecute him because we're his body. Now look at this at verse 14, the second part. Strange, isn't it? When's the last time you said to someone, it's hard for you to kick against the goads? Any parents say that to your kids? I told you to clean your room. I told you to take out the trash. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It actually would be fitting to say that. But your kid might look at you and say, what in the world? Are you Shakespeare? And so this is a proverb from agricultural life. And goads were like sharp pointed sticks that were used either to prod an animal and move them along or sometimes they mounted them on the front of a carriage so that the animal wouldn't kick back and injure whoever was driving the carriage. And so Jesus says this to Paul, don't kick against the goads. Now some people say, does that mean he was, something was happening in his conscience, his conscience was pricking him, and that's probably not it. It actually means do not struggle against your destiny. Do not fight against the new forces at work in your life. The Lord's moving. Jesus says, give in. Humble yourself, Paul. And so, as I was reading this week, I wondered, are there areas where you might be kicking against the goads? Are there areas in your life where the Lord is speaking, directing, drawing you? and you're resisting. It's a good thing, just like Paul, surrender. Say, Lord, I wanna hear your voice, I wanna follow you. Now look at verses 16 to 18. Jesus commissions Paul, and what's fascinating here is this reflects many Old Testament prophets calling. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, some of the same things that happened with them, it's happening right here. So if you've read the book, anybody read Ezekiel 1 and 2? 
before. It's pretty strange. Ezekiel encounters the Lord, the glory of the Lord, and he falls down because oftentimes when you encounter the glory of God, your body can't handle it and you fall down. And so Ezekiel had that happen. And the Lord told Ezekiel, get up. I'm going to fill you with my word and send you out. And so the same thing is happening here with Paul. He falls down. Jesus says, I've appeared to you for a reason. I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to send you to these people. Now, look at verse 16, the first part. So I was looking at this this week. I was struck by that second phrase. I have appeared to you for this purpose. Did you know when the Lord appears to us, there's always a purpose? And I don't mean physically appearing necessarily, but when you sense his presence, when he's there, he brings purpose. And so it's really not about necessarily all just being refreshed or lifted up or revived. The Lord comes because he's making a deposit in you. He brings his presence. He opens his word because there's purpose. He's installing something in you. He's going to send you out for reason. The second part of verse 17, he says, I'm sending you. Do you know what the, the word literally means? I'm going to apostle you. He's telling Saul, the former Christ hater, I'm going to apostle you. I'm going to make you an apostle. I'm going to send you out, just like he did with the 12 earlier. Look at what he sends him out to do. He apostles him. Sam mentioned the gospel. Well, we have the gospel right here coming from Jesus, who is the gospel. Friends, Jesus doesn't just bring the gospel. He is the gospel. He is the gospel in the flesh. Sometimes I hear people, and I didn't hear Sam doing this, but sometimes we talk about the gospel, and it's the gospel, and it's the gospel. The gospel points to Jesus. So we're actually fixated on him. Does that make sense? He is the one that the gospel points to. He is the gospel in the flesh. And so I think his appearance to Paul here, to Saul, he's emanating. He's explaining what the gospel is. He says, I'm sending you, look at verse 18, to open the eyes of these people, the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness like you're going to, to light, and from the power of Satan to God, and so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And Paul's going to talk about this later on in Colossians 1. Harrison was teaching through the book of Colossians, so he walked our youth through this recently. And Paul says in Colossians 1 that when we encounter Christ, when we put our faith in him, when we experience the grace of God in Christ, we are transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. And so Jesus is telling Saul, you're going to be doing this the rest of your life. You're going to tell people about me and you are going to be part of transferring them. The Father is going to transfer them from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Let's look quickly at 19 through 23. 
After this, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So he's telling him I obeyed Christ. He's sharing his story, his testimony. Verse 20, he says, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout the countryside of Judea, and also to Gentiles. So you kind of hear Acts 1-8 again. Do you hear that? That they should repent and turn to God and do deeds consistent with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. We've heard that over and over again, haven't we, throughout Acts. To this day, I've had help from God, and so I stand here testifying to both the small and the great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place. Verse 23, that the Messiah would suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So he's saying, Christ appeared to me. He's sharing his testimony, his story, and he's saying, you bet, you better believe it. King Agrippa, I obeyed. I obeyed this. And then he says at verses 22 and 23, something that's very important for us. His argument was, because Agrippa knew he had a Jewish background, Paul was saying to him, I'm not doing anything new. I'm not creating anything or devising anything. My message is rooted in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament. I'm not an innovator, I'm a renovator. And friends, this is true for us today. Did you know you don't have to come up with anything clever, trendy, cool, to pique people's interest. We have an ancient message, just like Paul did. We don't innovate anything. That's called heresy. Our message, like Paul is demonstrating right here, is firmly rooted in the revelation of God in his Messiah Christ. And so we're constantly, it's why we're people of the book, aren't we? We're constantly pointing to the scriptures, opening the scriptures. Who we are, our message is rooted in the word of God like Paul is talking about here, amen? We learn from this many things, but obedience to Christ, Paul's example, not being surprised by opposition and suffering. We've caught that message, haven't we, throughout the book of Acts. Usually, if you're opening the book and you're declaring the message, there's opposition, there's suffering. And then we're faithful to preaching and teaching and sharing this message. Look quickly at the end here, 24 to 32. So compelling is Paul in this context. Look what happens. While he was making his defense, Festus exclaimed, Paul, you're out of your mind. So the one sitting there with Agrippa says, you are nuts, Paul. Too much learning is driving you insane. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking the sober truth. Indeed, the king knows about these things. And to him I speak freely, for I am certain that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this was not done in a corner. So all the events about Jesus wasn't done in private. People knew about it, including Festus and Agrippa. Then look what he says. Again, keep in mind, this is a chain dude in rags, been in prison for two years, and he asks King Agrippa, 
Do you believe the prophets? He comes from a Jewish background, so he says, I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? Paul says, whether quickly or not, I pray to God, not only you, but also all who are listening to me today might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king got up, with him the governor and Bernice, and those who had been seated with them, the folks we saw in the picture, as they were leaving, they said to one another, catch this, this sums up all of these courtroom scenes, very important here, what's it say? This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Then it ends with this. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to the emperor. So friends, it's important to see this because it's setting up the end of the book. The next couple of chapters, Paul is going to get on a boat and sail to Rome. And it's gonna be one of the greatest maritime stories about a, a boat and a shipwreck that's ever been written. It's going to be thrilling to see Paul on his way to Rome, having the ship crash, the Lord speak to him. Why don't we stand up? I know that there's a lot in here, a lot of detail, but I hope that you've been learning some things from the book of Acts. I've said time and time again, really, this is the only inspired church history that we have. So Dr. Luke, who's written it, is trying to put before us a model, an example of what it means to be a church, what it looked like from the beginning, what the Lord had in his heart. And then Paul stands as a model over and over again of knowing the gospel, living the gospel, facing suffering and coming through. Next week, we'll look at Chapter 27. Why don't we have the ministry team go ahead and come up as well?